0: Welcome to Blockchain Explained, the podcast about opportunities, challenges, and trends in blockchain technology. Whether you're a beginner or an expert, a developer, or just crypto curious, this podcast is for you. It features industry leaders and government officials discussing the world of distributed ledgers, cryptocurrencies, and the metaverse. And now, here are your hosts, Alan Rickschaffen and Kelly Wicker.
1: Welcome to another episode of Blockchain Explained, the podcast where we talk to you about the basics of blockchain. I'm happy to be joined by my co-host and the chair of our d- digital assets forum here at the Wilson Center, Alan uh, And We're going to get into some more stuff today with uh, a new episode featuring Leslie Chapkin from the Stellar Foundation and Kurt Fields from PwC, talking about the new report they've released together, Enhancing the Social Handprint of Financial Service Providers, using blockchain to foster financial inclusion. Alan, why don't you get us started?
0: Sure, Kelly, it's always great to be with you and and I, welcome to our guests. I, you know, I, I want to start if we could, Leslie, if you could walk us through what we mean when we say financial inclusion, because you've done so much work on this and I just want everyone to be on the same page so we can start from the same point because you've done so much good stuff. And I think we really have to get through the building blocks to really understand what do we mean when we say financial inclusion?
2: Of course, yeah, and thank you so much, Alan and Kelly, for having us here. The Seller Development Foundation. We've been a part of the Wilson Center's Digital Assets Forum for about a year now, and it's been just a really great opportunity to kind of talk as an industry about some of these tricky policy issues and figure out where we need to do more education and be a resource. So this has been um, great for us on the question of financial inclusion. Let me step back, and I'll give you a little bit of background on on SDF, Seller Development Foundation. So SDF is a the nonprofit non-stock entity that's been around since 2014 and it supports the growth and development of the stellar blockchain network. That's an open public blockchain network. And for folks aren't familiar, you can think of it just as infrastructure, technology infrastructure. And we at the foundation are motivated by a mandate. Our mandate is to promote equitable access to the global financial system. And how we do that is we support the developers that are building on Stellar and building creative and innovative solutions. So that's really at the heart of our work. And I think you know, when I started in this industry, the question we got is, well, what is blockchain doing when it comes to financial inclusion and financial access? Tell us more. So that really motivated us to take on this particular work. And financial inclusion itself, there's a lot of definitions, but I think where there's consensus around it, it's when individuals and businesses um, have, have access to essential financial services that they can use, that they can access. And that can be things like payment and credit, credit and savings. And financial inclusion isn't the goal in and of itself, right? Financial inclusion is an enabler of other things. It can help reduce poverty, it can improve health outcomes, it can, you know, spur broader economic growth. So when we talk about financial inclusion, that's where we like to think of, think of it, is providing access, providing opportunity and being the building block to all these other kind of public goods. We're going to you know,
1: link to the full report in the description of this episode, but I'd love to, as a TLDR for our audience who may not get to read the whole thing, um, could you share some thoughts on what the key top lines were?
2: Yeah, I think what was really interesting for us is when we stepped back and we looked at where global financial inclusion was, we saw that there are some really big barriers that continue to persist, right? About a quarter of the world remains unbanked or underbanked. You have about 2 billion adults that are in the informal economy and use cash. You have remittances that, depending on where you're sending money to or from, can be really expensive, right? Just for an example, Ghana sending money into or out of Ghana, you can have fees upwards of seven or 8% of the transaction. The World Bank target is 3%, right? So it's a huge delta. So when we set out to do this research, what we were looking for is to figure out, okay, where can an innovative technology like blockchain be helpful in addressing some of these issues? And what came out of our, our research was kind of three big takeaways. One is that the report kind of underscores the importance of really taking a, a local approach when it comes to financial access and inclusion, right? So our case studies, which Kurt is going to get more into, but we looked at four different countries that all were facing pretty significant financial inclusion challenges, but there's certainly no one-size-fits-all solution for those challenges, right? It look very different country to country, and you have to design for that. Secondly, the report, uh, one big takeaway from the report is that it highlights how important Access is as an entry point to financial inclusion. So, like I was saying earlier, being able to on-road into the global financial sector system is really, really important. If you think of something like a digital payments tool, if a person has access to that, it opens up other opportunities to do more savings, to build credit. So you got to think of it as an entry point. Um, and then finally, I think most importantly for us, as it starts to answer that question, is what is the data behind blockchain and financial inclusion?
0: I'm just trying to understand. So when you What you're saying is that this financial inclusion is is discusses people who are unbanked who don't have access to credit cards also. So why can't they just use their pay payment system on on their smartphones? A lot of people have smartphones. I think there's widespread use of smartphones, even among the unbanked. So why couldn't they just use the payment systems that we might use every day on their smartphones to handle some of these issues?
2: Yeah, and I think when when we're looking at financial inclusion, we're not just looking at access, right? We're looking at access to services, a variety of services. So maybe you're only using for payments, but you're not using services for credit and for savings, for all these other elements of financial inclusion. And also that it's trustworthy, right? So these are all important aspects of financial inclusion. You may have a service. It may not be the right one. There may be more that would be value add and give you better financial outcomes, but one of the things I really enjoyed about the report were the case studies, because, you know, like, I think talking
1: about these topics in a really broad way is helpful, but knowing how they're hitting the ground for me is always what makes it click. Um, and there were four countries highlighted in the report. You had Argentina, Colombia, Kenya, and the Philippines. Um, I'd love to hear how those were selected and, um, you know, just some of, the, some of the really interesting things that you saw in those case studies.
3: Sure, and I think this touches on some of what Alan was alluding to as well, because what we saw in you know when we evaluated which territories to to, to take a look at, we wanted to consider a few different factors. So obviously, many of these jurisdictions are emerging markets. Um, many of them, because of the challenges that they face, are also hotbeds of innovation because they are trying to address challenges that. legacy institutions globally have not been able to address. And, you know, as such, because these markets are developing so much, we wanted to understand where the technology, where the offerings was meeting the individual, meeting the local citizen and where it was falling short. And so one of the things that we noticed in our research across all four jurisdictions was the fact that even though there may be certain capabilities offered to an individual, let's say mobile money. Kenya was a very interesting uh, piece of research for us because the prevalence of mobile money is actually surprisingly high. It's more than 90% of the population has access to mobile money. However, when you look at the financial inclusion rates, it's about half of the population. So there's a very clear Delta. And one of the reasons for that is that other considerations in terms of how an individual uh, procures the services they need, meets the needs of their their daily requirements, uh, things like financial literacy, uh, a UI that makes sense for an individual who is used to using other products and services in the jurisdiction, Uh, There are various factors that come together that uh, create these barriers for someone to be more included in the broader financial services journey. So while they might be using mobile money, it may be difficult for them to assert their identity to qualify for a savings account at a local financial institution. And if they can't set up that savings account, well, they're not going to be able to access additional financial services like credit and and other products that uh, are, are relevant to their day to day. Uh, as they purchase goods and services and, and look at their financial livelihood. Um, similarly, when you think about other jurisdictions, there were other considerations that are more front and center for the c- local citizen, and again, are not being captured and contextualized in a product existing products that are in market. So I'll give the example of Argentina. Argentina, uh, while they may have a wealth of products and services when it comes to uh, what's offered by financial institutions, many still struggle with asserting identity in a way that satisfies requirements for local institutions. Uh, and then obviously there are macroeconomic factors that make things prohibitive. So, you know, unfortunately, the the economic situation in Argentina is getting worse and worse uh, with rising inflation rates. And so what we're seeing is uh, local citizens look to either the traditional cash economy more and more, or they're looking outside of the bounds of Argentina to find products that meet their needs. And this is where, again, we started to surface an opportunity for blockchain to provide some of those Uh, connective capabilities and offer more resources to the individual that makes sense for their day-to-day. The Philippines and Colombia, again, different patchwork of uh, challenges that the local individual meets, but the consistent theme was that for the products and services that are out there globally, it always comes back to contextualization. So what is the local mix of factors that drive someone to select a product or service, or how do they execute on... uh, Uh, meeting their needs on the day-to-day, do they trust the institutions that are providing these offerings? Trust in many of these jurisdictions, even mature economies, uh, is unfortunately uh, uh, not as high as we would like. Uh, Trust rates are very low in in many jurisdictions right now. So how do we create a capability that's based in a technology that provides transparency and visibility into governance in a way that is easily digestible by the masses? Uh, Again, very important piece of the story and quality. Uh, another interesting tidbit that we noticed in our research was quality, obviously, is a local is a local uh, uh, evaluation. What I mean by that is the way that we interpret quality in a product or service in the United States is going to look and feel very different than the way mon- one might evaluate quality in Colombia, for example. Again, we have different needs, different market considerations. So the notion of quality then also obviously influences the way a product is even designed. So the way that an individual is interacting with that product hmm. is contextualized for the definitions of quality in that market. So variety of different factors. I, I think that obviously there were some key themes that spanned all markets, uh, but the important thing is that uh, the, the local context, context is important in understanding the weight that you should be putting against some of these parameters of value.
0: Could, I, I'm, I'm curious, you, you talked about this idea of financial literacy and the import of it being easy to understand. How do you get the understanding out there, I mean, it, would it be through an education effort sponsored by government and and I guess related to that question is the question of trust at the end of the day, you need a centralized. Entity that is marketing this, for lack of a better way to describe it, marketing these products or giving access to these products, whether it's by creating the the user interface or or somebody's got to be doing that at the at the front end. So how do you build that trust? I understand that the the system of the blockchain is designed to solve the trust question, but at the end of the day, that's going to have a name on it, it's going to have it's going to feel like a centralized entity, even if it's not.
3: Yeah, so maybe maybe let me tackle the first question around financial literacy. Again, I think it comes back to local context and what the local financial services journey looks like. For example, in the Philippines, many individuals still deal in cash economy and they traditionally have select vendors that they treat as their cash brokers. So whether it's local pawn shops or other local vendors that they do business with to either move money uh, or purchase goods and services, Those are their primary points of contact and exposure to financial services. So in that instance, that might be one entry point to upskill the local population on what's available to them from a service standpoint. In other cases where you might have a push from a more national organization, whether it's a government or an NGO in, let's say, the Kenyan market, there are specific organizations that are advancing the use of uh, or the um, enhanced quality of use in mobile money. So there's already a foothold when people use their daily mobile money capability, and that's one entry point for uh, the injection of additional financial uh, educational resources. So it always depends on the market in terms of what that catch point is in someone's day-to-day, where they're exposing themselves to the financial services ecosystem. Um, And even within these jurisdictions, again, it depends on where they sit within the economy. Um, So I think agility, flexibility, Are very important, which traditional financial services tend to be more rigid. This is where blockchain started to, uh, in our findings, deliver more value. The fact that it is a more flexible technology, it is more agile, it's bringing together an ecosystem of different offerings so that individuals have options in the way that they procure a, a service that was very important for them in their upskilling. Um, and then I think your, your last question was around you know this notion of centralization versus decentralization. Where do people actually look for that trust? And I think the good thing about blockchain is it's bringing together a number of different trusted organizations in a collaborative fashion. This wasn't really possible before. I mean, most organizations, whether they were private or public, approach technology in an enterprise setting. So each enterprise, again, whether it's a company or a national government, had their own vested interest. The way that they thought about governance, data, systems, process, impact to the individual that they're serving or the the community that they're serving, it was with an enterprise mindset. Then you have to think about how that enterprise is interacting with the hundreds of counterparties that they work with to serve that same community. You end up with a very messy patchwork of solutions, governance, uh, gaps in information. And that's where we start to see the trust breakdown. The beauty of blockchain is it's bringing these companies together in a way that forces them to collaborate. Definitely not an easy process. And we're definitely still on that journey of coming to what that sound governance looks like. But it's one of those first technologies that's created a platform for, again, both private and public institutions to collaborate on rules and goals that we're all marching towards.
1: So we had actually our last episode was with uh, someone from the World Bank talking about global financial inclusion and whether blockchain could be used as a solution. And it sounds like from the way you're talking right now, you might uh, be in agreement with him. But I'd love to hear. He seemed to feel like we really haven't hit the point yet where blockchain is helping us close these financial gaps, and that there were some things we needed to to kind of jump. And it would would that be your take? And and is it just these questions of uh, access, usability, and education? Or what's that missing bridge?
3: Well, so to that end, I, I think we're actually seeing uh, significant progress when it comes to how blockchain is starting to be integrated with the existing financial services ecosystem. I mean, there were five core areas that we observed where there was measurable progress, where, again, the legacy system, uh, systems environment globally was falling short. Uh, first was cost. Again, relevant for both emerging markets and mature markets, cost is tantamount in the way that an individual and a community uh, looks at the way that they uh, choose which products and services that they will engage with. And blockchain has been able to reduce cost in the way that uh, individuals can onboard to an ecosystem, uh, become a a significant part of a financial services ecosystem and the way that they can transact uh, on their day-to-day needs. Second part was suitability. Again, coming back to this notion of legacy products and services being quite rigid and blockchain offering this agility in the way that uh, these, these ecosystems are now offering innovative solutions in a contextualized fashion to communities. That suitability is making a, a huge difference when it comes to individuals being able to adopt something in a way that's seamless for them. The third, <clears throat> excuse me. The third piece was around speed. So again, thinking about even simple day-to-day transactions, where if any one of us wants to send money to a different country, uh, we still deal with time delay, and you know, especially for you know the the, the individuals globally who are traditionally unbanked. Time delay has a huge impact on the way that they are dealing with their day-to-day needs. So blockchain has been able to bring that uh, time delay to almost T0 in in many cases. And that is a a game changer when it comes to the way that individuals uh, go about their day-to-day. Fourth area was interoperability. So while we're talking about blockchain, we're talking about innovative solutions, we're not suggesting that blockchain will replace everything that exists today. The important piece about blockchain from a technology standpoint is also that it's uh, it's very interoperable with legacy technology. So integration is a key part to designing these systems in a successful way. And even blockchain itself, there are different permutations of blockchain globally. Uh, quite frankly, there, there are a lot. And I think the the comforting thing is that everyone recognizes uh, interoperability as a core design principle. Again, keeping the individual, the consumer, uh, uh, you know, in, in in you know the the highest regard, right? You don't want the consumer, the individual, to have to navigate which network to inter- interact with to get a product or service. So this notion of interoperability, so that it's seamless for the individual or the entity to consume what's on blockchain, is very important. And then lastly. This notion of security. Again, given where we are uh, globally when it comes to vulnerabilities, uh, increasing attacks from a cybersecurity standpoint, uh, blockchain is one of the most secure technologies we've seen to date. So the fact that blockchain is being woven into a number of existing technology stacks, I think only advances uh, the level of security that is being offered to, uh, to corporations, to, to governments, to individuals. Uh, various communities uh, in a way that was not available in the past.
2: And Kelly, I think one uh, thing. Yeah, just one thing to add on to what Kurt said is I think when you talk about financial inclusion in blockchain, you have to ask what about the technology is is advancing parts of inclusion. I think it's not realistic to say blockchain is gonna be the solution that addresses everything about financial inclusion. And that comes out in the report, right? It's not a one size fits all solution, but there are elements of financial inclusion that it can advance, particularly around that access point. So I think that's an important nuance to keep in mind about what its value add is. Leslie,
0: I I wanna ask you and Kurt, both of you, a question to, to make this more real, and so we can really get a feeling for what this is, as opposed to conceptualizing it in the context of the study you've done. Um, can you walk us through what the world looks like if we were to implement a um, financial inclusion uh, structure that is built on blockchain infrastructure? Maybe talk a little bit about how the the your foundation is involved and and how end users are actually using this, how this is actually solving the problem, what that actually looks like in real life.
2: And maybe as a starting point, I think it'd be helpful to kind of talk through, we did this big white paper, which also includes uh, a framework in it. So it's the global financial inclusion framework that allows financial service providers to measure their own performance against uh, financial inclusion metrics. And so that's a really important thing to come across. I think when you're looking, when you're talking about what does the world look like, this is a tool that we created so that we can help inform that discussion, right? So that financial service providers can say, all right, here are the problems in a particular market, what are the products and services I'm thinking of, how will they meet market needs, and how can they contribute to broader inclusion goals, broader economic growth, because they're not mutually exclusive. These things are compatible, and these ESG goals go right hand in hand with sort of business growth and development.
0: I'm hoping that you could walk us through what it feels like to be a person who's actually using this. What what does that actually look like? meeting all the goals that that, that we've studied, what does it look like as a person on the ground who's actually using this? And what is the experience like?
2: Yeah, so if you're a user on the ground, and Kirk can speak to this too, if you're a user on the ground, you have access to, say, a financial service that allows you to send a remittance within seconds to someone across the world with at low fees, at low cost, it's transparent. You don't necessarily need to go to a bank account, set up an account with identification documents you may not have readily available. That opens up a world of opportunity for someone that previously wasn't able to attain those products and services. And from there, that's An access point to start doing other things, setting up, say, an insurance program, having some credit, building up credit history, building up a payments program so that they have um, um, a a cushion for an emergency. So really, it's being an entree point point into a broader system.
1: Thanks so much, Kurt and Leslie. Um, I'm really looking forward to continuing to talk with you guys about this report and see what gets done with it. And I encourage everyone listening here to uh, take a look. It's, it's not a long read and it's got plenty of um, really interesting like, charts to unpack the things that were learned. Um, thanks so much for your time and uh, join us next time for another episode of Blockchain Explained.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Blockchain Explained. Please note, nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Want more clear-eyed analysis of this exciting technology? Search for Digital Assets Forum at the Wilson Center for research, event recordings, and more. Want to ask our hosts a question? Write to stip, S-T-I-P at wilsoncenter.org with your thoughts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Blockchain Explained.